If you have a Bible, I want you to go to two places this morning. I want you to go to Psalm 136, and I want you to go to 1 John. One is in the Old Testament, one is in the New Testament. And we're going to read portions of both of these passages. And believe it or not, you're going to help me. And so I want to look at some steps this morning for us to make the Lord's table meaningful. But let me just say it is good to be back with my family, not just my biological family, but with my church family. I love Sundays. I cannot lie to you. I love Sundays. No matter what my day, my week has been like, I look forward to Sunday. I love to be with you. I love to be in church. I love to discover what's going to happen. I love to see your faces. I love to catch up. Inevitably, every Sunday, I get to speak to people or people speak to me, and we get to discover life together. I love to sing. Those were great songs uh, this morning, and I believe the Holy Spirit worked to bring these songs together with what I want to talk to you about this morning. I love to read God's Word, and I love to preach it. I cannot lie again. I love to do this. I love to preach God's Word to myself. I love to read and preach God's Word to my family and to my church family. And if you're a friend or a visitor here this morning, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I get to open up God's Word and explain a little bit of it to you as well this morning. But before we get into that, let me give us all again a reality check, because I don't know if it's because I became a grandfather, but man, time flies now, because this is the first Sunday of April. A quarter of 2019 is gone. Three months of it is gone. It's in the past. You can't get it back. It's already, it feels like I just remember Jeff speaking at Christmas Eve of Christmas of 2018, and now we're almost to Easter of 2019. But I want to just get us to breathe, and I, I want us to take a moment and just be reflective. How are you doing? Within your own heart, and mind right now, from the youngest of you to the oldest of you, how are you doing? How are you doing? What's the beginning of 2019 been like for you? Has it been a good year? Are you happy that quarter is gone? Do you have regrets, successes, failures, ups, downs? How's your walk with God? If you're here this morning, you would say, I'm, I'm a Christian. Okay, how's your walk with God been in the first few months of 2019? If you would say, Steve, listen, I, I, I trust Christ. I follow him and I believe in him as my Savior and my Lord. Then I ask you, how is that relationship right now? What are you struggling with? I mean, not just like those safe, canned, cliche answers. I mean, if you could be alone with someone you trust and they said, how are you doing? What would you say? What are the failures or the sins that seem to be dogging you right now? You're just like, am I ever going to get victory over this? Am I ever going to know the answer to this 
question, am I ever going to make sense of why this is happening in my life right now? Because I don't have answers. I've got way more questions than I've got answers. What if we stopped right now and I said, okay, we're going to go way back in the traditions of the Baptist religious culture and we're going to have testimony time. And I was just going to say, all right, stand up and testify, all you that have something to say. What would your praises be that you would offer God at testimony time? How about your prayer life? Your time of reading God's word or listening for him to speak to you. I wonder if you had to write it down and pass it in the offering plate, have you felt that God has spoken to you in the last week or the last month or this year? How many of us would write yes and how many of us would write, no, I'm still waiting to hear from him? It's amazing, isn't it? I wish that you guys, I wish sometimes I could have a 12 by 20 mirror behind me and simply drop the sheet every now and then so you could all stare at what I stare at when I ask these types of questions of people. Because it's amazing what some well-placed questions followed by a little bit of awkward silence will make us think. Because it's interesting, some of you are doing like this vicious stare down with me right now going, I'll stare at him and he'll never know that everything's not okay. And some of you are dead set on not making eye contact with me right now for fear that I might call you out because that's the awkwardness of personal kinds of questions. See, awkward silence, those off-the-wall questions, those are not regular questions, often get us thinking, really thinking, pondering. It's interesting because David wrote that God the Father once impressed upon him in Psalm 6, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Yet our world is filled with noise, isn't it? Our world is filled with distractions. Our world is filled with reactions between Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. All we do is react to things. Just this past week for Russ and myself and Steve and Dave, along with Jeff and Grace and Rachel... We just got back from the the Gospel Coalition Conference down in Indianapolis. And we were there with literally thousands of Christians from all over the world gathered for a concentrated time of preaching and teaching and fellowship. And I'm happy to report that Mile One Mission was on display at our first big conference. And by amazing grace, God's amazing grace, potential new partners have been made. One of my great stories I can't wait to tell you is about Moody Church in Chicago, where that church is now considering partnering with Mile One Mission. And I want you to understand that a pastor from Moody Church stopped by our booth because he had just finished teaching his young adults about a guy named Sir Wilfred Grenville, in which they were learning about this medical missionary that sold his fortune to go to this place that they had never heard of. And little did he know that he was right in front of a booth where we're from Newfoundland. And now their church is considering how they can partner with us a hundred plus years later. God is on the move. And I think that all seven of us that were there, in the midst of the crowds, in the rush of traveling, the joy of food and fellowship, the overwhelming display of booths and books and stuff, we likely all had a moment of what I would call weighted sobriety. Whether it was a song or a sermon, 
a prayer, a chance encounter, a testimony. It was used of God to stop us or slow it down. And for me personally, as I thought about preaching to you today and sharing the Lord's table, it was a sermon by a pastor by the name of David Platt. David Platt preached a sermon last week where I felt I was in a room with six or 7,000, but I felt like I was all alone. I felt like he was preaching to just me. I felt like nobody else was there. It was as if God sat me there and talked to me, and I heard him say these words in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I have known these words. I have sung these words. These are the words of an old hymn called, Search Me, O God. But for that 40 minutes on that day in that auditorium, it was as if God was revisiting me to let me know that I need to make sure my relationship with God has meaning, that I stop being tempted to just go through the motions. I felt the weight of my life. I felt the weight of life here at home in St. John's at Calvary. I was challenged by the need for me to be urgent and passionate and unapologetic in living out and proclaiming the whole gospel to my family, biologically, to my friends and my neighbors, and well, to be honest, anybody I meet in this city. God reminded me that I love this city of St. John's. I love this province. I love this place to which God has called me and told me to serve him and to worship him and to represent him. And yet here we are, the first Sunday of another month, another communion for me and six others after another conference. So much to be thankful for. And yet I'm shocked and amazed how easy it is to snap into a religious posture and just act like everything's okay. To actually long for something deeper and more meaningful, but unable to shake my own patterns of living and surviving life. I've used this cliche in counseling all the time. It's, I'd rather the hell I know than the hell I don't know. And so many people live their lives like that. To believe that Jesus is both willing and able to save me and to keep me and to provide for me, to hear my prayers and to point me in the right way, but yet so quickly to doubt him and then to trust my own survival skills. All the while knowing that if I do things my way, this isn't going to end well for me. Have you ever been there? Where intellectually you know what to do, but then you just lapse into a pattern of living. And so I want to show you how we do this. You see, there's all kinds of verses we can quote and Christian cliches we can quote, do Christian things, act in certain Christian ways, and yet miss the point entirely or put our minds and hearts into neutral and simply coast through another service, another small group, another Sunday school class, another musical or worship time or another sermon or another Lord's table. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Psalm 136. And I'd like to start with this today, and this is what it's called. Are you ready for this? Here's a $50 word. Psalm 136 is an antiphonal psalm. So that should impress you that I'm smart, okay? Well, actually, what it means is I'm literate, and so I can read. Um, There are many antiphonal psalms in the Bible, and what that means is 
These are psalms where a choir director would say a certain portion of the words, and then the gathered congregation, in this case Israel, would then respond back to the choir director. So I'd like to turn you into the people of Israel. All right, so would you stand with me? We're going to read God's word. I'm going to read Psalm 136, and you're going to notice something occurs over and over again in Psalm 136. At the end of every verse, there's the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to read the first part. Every time you come to that, I want you, the congregation, to respond to me with that phrase. Now, let's go back in time. 3,500 years Solomon's temple. It was one of the eight ancient wonders of the world. It had this massive temple covered in gold. When the sun would strike it, you could see it for literally miles. There was marble and grandeur. Shofars and ram's horns were blowing. Priests in their high priestly garb and priestly garbs. Animals and sheep and things that are being sacrificed. The altar, bronze altar is lit and the fire and smoke is lighting up. There are tens of thousands of people there, all culminating towards the great day of atonement and that wonderful big sacrifice that was going to happen. And one of the, the song directors, either Korah or Asaph, would approach whatever that stage looked like and he would then say these words and the congregation would respond. And so he would say, say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. Give thanks or to him alone who does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him, God, who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Shihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, 
and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Thank you, and please be seated. Now, I want you to consider what you just experienced in doing that, because I could hear it in the tone. The first time you said, a steadfast love endures, you were all trying to figure out when you were supposed to speak and get in rhythm with each other. And then for about five verses later, it was like, well, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And by the time we got to 11, 12, and 13, you were like, well, there's a lot of verses here. And then when we got to like 18, 19, and 20, some of you started to go, all right, all right, for the steadfast love, blah, 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 blah. And then you could tell, finally, we're at verse 26. I did that for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted you to experience how quickly things can become monotonous. How quickly we can just do things because we're told to do them. How quickly it is to go through the motions. You see, in spite of all the graphic pictures that I explained to you, all of the amazing sights and sounds, the awesomeness of the buildings, Israel too drifted into apathy and complacent. And when all was said and done, it led them to a faulty sacrifice, dulled ritualistic sounds with half-hearted worship, hence why we sang the heart of worship, and a complete wrong view of our relationship with God. Now, if you fast forward to the first century to 1 John, which is where I asked you to go in the New Testament, into 1 John, John the Apostle is writing three letters. And I'd like to focus on 1 John for us today in an overview. I'd like to challenge myself and you for just a few more minutes about how we can make the Lord's table, the church, God, the gospel, the Bible, and this idea of eternal life meaningful as you live your lives moment by moment in the routine of life. You see, all of the Bible excites me, and I love reading every part of it. But 1 John is actually a a letter written to Christians about staying focused on Christ and the gospel. And that's what I want us to do. And I, I think you and I need to do this every day. When you and I do this each day, we will avoid turning the Lord's table into a routine or just coming to church and kind of punching the clock or trying to look for something and never finding it. Let me give you the example, all right? So that was an Old Testament example. Let me bring this right into today, 2019, okay? How about marriage, wedding day versus anniversary? I want you to think about your wedding day. If you are here and you're married, I want you to think about your wedding day. If you're here and you're not married, some of you might be thinking about a coming wedding day, How often, though, let me ask you as couples, does your anniversary reflect the kind of emotion that you had on your wedding day? And again, a lot of you don't want to make eye contact with me right now. 
And a lot of women just look sideways at their husbands. All right? Men, come on, be honest. Is the feelings, the emotion, the, the investment and the energy to your anniversary equal to that of your wedding day? How about it, ladies? Why? Is it not because often we take for granted what happened on that day? So cannot church, the gospel, our relationship with God, the Lord's table become routine and habit, ritual for the same reason. And so on this day, in the Lord's day of 2019, I'd like to propose six little steps that you and I can take from 1 John as the way we can make the Lord's table meaningful this morning. And then we're going to put those steps into practice, okay? So step number one, if you want to write these things down is this. If you want to make your relationship with God, the Lord's table, church, if you want to make sense of the gospel and this religious stuff, if it's going to be more than just a form but meaningful, confess the power of the Son of God. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, where John writes and he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Now that's a blanket statement. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Two chapters later, if you take it and go two chapters over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And what do I mean by this first step of confessing the power of the Son of God? Let me put it into a word. Forgiveness forgiveness. Let me put it into an illustration. Some of you might know pop culture. Michael Christopher wrote a play, and it's called The Black Angel. That's the proper name of it. His play, The Black Angel, has actually been converted into several movies and into a television series. It tells the story of a German by the name of Hermann Engel. He was a general during World War II, And, of course, as you know, as the Nazis were defeated at the Nuremberg Court, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for the atrocities committed by his army. 30 years later, as the play tells us, there was a French journalist by the name of Moreau whose entire family had been massacred by Engel's army. And for 30 years, Moreau had nurtured his hatred and he hungered for vengeance. Upon Engel's release, 30 years later, Moreau had stoked up the fanatics who had also lost family and friends at Engel's hand, and they established a plot to burn down the cabin that Engel was living in and to shoot him and his wife. Moreau, however, couldn't be content with just simple revenge with a mob. He wanted to get something more. So he went to Engel's cabin before him because he wanted to hear the whole story. He confronts him. He ties him up. He ties up his wife. And he confronts him to confess the wrongs that he had done. He started grilling Engel, trying to fill in the gaps and making him own and take responsibility. And yet, Engel's feeble humanity confused Moreau. For 30 years, he had remembered the monster, and now the monster looked more like a tired old man in front of him. And so it was that doubt began to blur Moreau's vengeance, and the purity of his hatred was contaminated. But the wheels had already been put into motion. In a short time, these fanatics and mob would be coming to burn the cabin. So finally, 
in an ironic twist of fate, driven by his doubts, Moreau blurted out the plan and offered to lead Engel out of the woods and save his life. To which Engel replied, I will go with you on one condition of which Moreau was indignant. He could not understand. How could you offer me one condition? And this was his condition. I will go with you on the condition that you forgive me. Forgive me. Forgiveness. You see, it's a profound thing. If you're going to experience a normal, satisfying life, then let me tell you, you must have the experience of forgiveness of wrongs. Because unless you understand the confessing power and and the acceptance of God's love and forgiveness and that almost unnatural act, our life will get bound up. It's like an overloaded washing machine. It becomes unable to continue normal motion. We get so constricted by unconfessed sin that we can't relate properly to God and we can't relate properly to others. And that's why John would say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want church to be meaningful, if you want Christianity to be meaningful, if you want this table to be meaningful, then folks, listen, you got to know what forgiveness feels like. you got to know what it is to be forgiveness. And I know this personally. So many of you know a little bits and pieces of my life and my testimony. You know that as a teenage boy, I ran away from home angry and bitter with God and my parents and the church. And I lied about my mom and dad and I embarrassed them. I lied about them to the Department of Social Services. I accused accused them of child abuse. I, I had my father investigated. My father lost his ministry. It blew our family to pieces. And over a series of months, God humbled me and put me in my own spiritual pig pen where I had nowhere to go and no one to turn to. And I remember that fateful Sunday afternoon when after months of being in no relationship with my father, having been found out as a liar, calling my dad and simply saying, Daddy, I want to come home. And there wasn't an angry voice on the other end of the phone. All I heard was, Sit tight. I'm coming for you. And those of you who know the geography, at that time my father pastored in Harbor Grace. At that time it took about 90 minutes to drive in from there. And he drove in and I had 90 minutes of self-reflection on the damages I had caused to my family. And I tried to rehearse a speech create one. I tried to imagine what I was going to say to my dad. I tried to think about how I would make things right for all the wrongs I had done. And I was truly remorseful and I was truly sorry, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And can you imagine my shock when my father walked down the hall and opened the door and I stood off that bed to tell him how sorry I was. And my father's response was to drop to his knees, put his arms out and say, come to daddy. And I fell into the arms of a loving father who held me and loved me. And when I tried to rehearse my apology again, whispered into my ears, I am sorry I failed you as a dad. 
Now, can I ask you, do you think that because of that one experience, that experience of forgiveness on such a profound level, can you can think for one second that I would never now not go to my father? He's my hero. I love my dad. I always feel safe to go to my dad and tell my dad anything. I can confess anything to him because he's forgiven me of far worse. Oh, do you know that kind of forgiveness in Christ? Do you know what it is to be forgiven? God the Father knows everything about you. This is what the prodigal son story is all about. He's in a pig pen, and he comes to his senses, Matthew tells us, and he runs back to dad, and he thinks he's going to go and convince dad. And can you imagine the fear and the doubt and the trembling? And his father runs to him. Jesus Christ came to you and I, folks. We didn't go to him. He came to us. He lived for you and I. He died for you and I. He rose from the dead for you and I. And he says, come to me. Come to daddy. I love you. I forgive you. I will protect you. That's what it means to confess the power of Jesus. Oh, you want this to be meaningful? Have you experienced that kind of forgiveness? Where you're not afraid. Do you believe it? This past week, I learned that Jesus is not only able to save, but willing to save. You see, I think a lot of professing Christians know that little kid song we learned in Sunday school. He's able, he's able, I know he's able, right? But we often struggle with, but is he willing? You see, it's not just that Jesus is able to forgive you. He's willing to forgive you. He wants to. And that's what you and I need to see. You see, listen, my dad forgave me on that day when I was almost 15 years old, and now I'm 47. You don't think I didn't fail my dad since? I have screwed up. In fact, I have failed my dad more numerically since that day than I ever did before that day, but I have never been afraid to go to my dad and say, I screwed up again because I know he'll always forgive me. Oh, do you know Jesus that way? Do you understand it? Do you know that God the Father knows every word, deed, thought, motive, intent, every glance, every selfish desire? God knows it all and still sent his son for you to love you. And so step two then is this, believe that Jesus is the Christ. You see, don't just believe that in the confessing power of God, you've got to believe that Jesus actually is the Christ, and I could have put that he is your Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the question that you and I have to answer then is what do we mean when we say believe? What does it mean to believe? You see, in Webster's Dictionary, believe means it means to feel sure that something is true. It means to believe and have confidence in. But in the Bible, the word believe means conviction based on testimony that something is true or that someone is reliable. So do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in God? It means you trust, which means, by the way, wait for it, ready? Here it is, faith faith. 
In fact, when John uses this word believe, like he does in John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word actually means believe into. We're to put our trust in him. And so this is what we do. And here's the areas where you have to ask yourself, do you trust? You see, in John chapter 1, verse 12, John told us that whoever believed in God, to them gave he power to become the sons and daughters of God. Do you believe that? No matter who you are, no matter what your last name is, no matter what your sin list is, doesn't matter where you come from or where you're headed, do you believe that if you believe in God, you will be saved? He told the, the crowd after he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 35, that, that if they would feed on him or drink from him, they would never thirst. He told Mary and Martha and the crowd that were there weeping over the death of Lazarus in John eleven twenty five 25, that he was the resurrection and the life, and that even they would live even though they died. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And if you're here this morning, you're like, Steve, listen, dude, you're obviously wound up. We can tell you've been to a conference. Okay, listen to me. If you don't know him, oh, I want you to know him. He's truly God, and he's willing and able to save you. And Christian, are you coming to this table this morning and believing that this is the God you are going to worship? What a thought. My life, I put into Jesus' hands. I will tell you something. If you will do that before you leave here, your life will get far less stressful. And we live in the most stressful days of our existence. And I believe it's because Satan has tricked us all that we can't believe in God. God is not some cosmic ogre sitting on some throne filled with all kinds of power like a Greek god looking to make our lives miserable. His do's and don'ts are not some arbitrary things where he wants to remind us that he's got the power and we don't. He actually loves us so much that the way he tells us to live is for our good. That's what you got to believe. And when you do that, then step three. If you've confessed his power, you believe that he's the Christ, then keep the commandments of Christ, notice, from a heart of love and trust. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's the clause. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't know how to make it any clearer than this, but I don't want you to miss the, con con the connection. You don't keep this table magnificent and meaningful by simply keeping an arbitrary set of rules. The secret here is not to obey to earn God's favor, but because you already have God's favor. So let me ask you, those of you that know my life and know what my father has forgiven me of, do you know what it would be like to have your son accuse you of, of child abuse, to have a, a, a policeman and a lawyer and a department of social services representative come knock on your door and say, we need to ask you very embarrassing questions and, and go through all of that to have your family, your mother, your mother-in-law, all these things question everything about you, only to be proven that you were right and the son, the little lying son, was the one who was lying. Do you think that now that God, my dad has forgiven me, that my dad has to convince me to obey him? Or that I'm driven to obey him? So when my dad asks me for help, 
I have to tell you, I don't usually go, oh, Dad, again? I'm like, Dad, what do you need? Because I love him. And so when my heavenly father says, Steve, I want you to live this way. And I'm like, yeah, but, but I like doing that. And then I read in his word and he says, no, but what's best for you is to do that. I don't obey to go, well, if I want God to like me and give me good stuff, then I better keep him happy, so I better keep the rules. No, I go, you know what? He saved me from everything. He would never, ever hurt me. He would never ask me to do anything that isn't for my good, so why wouldn't I trust him? And so that's what it means. You see, really this boils down to not only whom do I worship, but whom do you trust? It's who do you trust? Step four, walk as Christ walked. All right? You confess the power of God. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. You practice and obey the things he tells you. But then you walk. If you're going to do the things he tells you, guess what? You're going to become like him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Now that's a very theological set of sentences. Let me make this very practical. In Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, Paul makes this real easy. He says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now that, if you notice too, are all emotion-based sins. Have you noticed this? Anger, bitterness, these are how I feel. Wrath is how I feel. Anger is how I feel. Clamor and slander is well when I feel how I want to say things and how I want to lash out. Be put away from you with all malice. And here's what he says. If you really experience Jesus, then be kind to one another. I love this word, tender-hearted. I wish we could capture that word again in our churches. I look into so many faces when I travel. I love to sit in airports, I can't lie, and I love to watch faces, and often what I see are hard faces, not tender faces. Do you ever notice why we love to look at babies? It's because their faces are tender. They're tender-hearted. They haven't been jaded or cynical yet. Even their crying is genuine, isn't it? It comes from legitimate need. He says, be tenderhearted. Notice then, forgiving one another. Why would you do this? As God in Christ forgave you. See, that's back to step one, right? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, I get to, I get to do this parenting. I'm doing parenting 2.0 because now I've got these grandkids and Theo is almost two. And, and Theo is at that point where he literally believes that I can do anything, if I tell him I can throw him to the moon, he just puts his arms up and goes, give it a go, right? He, he, he never questions it. When I, when, I, when I say fist pump, he just goes fist pump. When I go thumbs up, he does thumbs up. When I go, and he can't even do it, he just goes, he just flicks his head. But he's trying to imitate me. Why? Because he loves me and he knows I love him. Oh, church, listen, if you want this to be meaningful, if you want this whole hour and 90 minutes to mean something, goodness, walk as Christ walked. And then number five, practice the kind of righteousness of Christ. 
You want to obey his commands. By obeying him, it makes you like him. When you're like him, then you're going to like what he likes. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, you've got to practice this. You've got to exercise your faith. And this is where I think a lot of Christians and those that are searching for Christianity get this confused. You think that your Christianity is this one-off event and then poof, bingo, bango, all of a sudden you're this godly person. That's not how it works. I love my wife more now than I did on my wedding day. You know why? Because for 27 years, Debbie has proven to me over and over and over and over and over again, she loves me. And I've had to exercise that love through my failures, my screw-ups, all these types of things. You've got to exercise this. That's why, remember when, when Malachi, the prophet, told the nation of Israel, God said, would you test me, try me, and see, and prove, I will prove to you that I am God. Isaiah the prophet told us to come and reason with God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the, the, the writer John says, Come to him if you're thirsty. Come, exercise your faith. And then finally, number six, if you do those first five, here's the, the cool way to land the plane. You can be confident that you'll overcome the world. Huh. That's truly what it means to be victory in Jesus. John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that's why Romans 8 can mean something to us. And I know that all things work together for, God, for good to those who love Christ Jesus over and over again, as we just recited in Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So listen, if you've had a horrible day, if you've had a horrible week, if you've had a horrible month or first quarter of this year, if you might say, God seems a million miles away and my heart is cold and my life is in shambles, and I have to tell you, run to Jesus and the cross. Because that's where you find all of these steps put together. This is the only place for you. The God who saves is the God who is both able and willing to forgive you and I over and over and over again. Psalm 103, the psalmist said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, past, present, and future who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is what I want us to bring into the table of the Lord. And you might say, all right, but Steve, you don't know what my life's been like. No, you're right. I don't. But God does knows you perfectly with all your screw-ups, wrinkles, warts, scars, hurts, questions, doubts, and he loves you. That what good news God proclaims to us at the table of the Lord. The Lord knows how weak our faith is. Maybe today you've got to start exercising your faith a little bit here. You see, the bread and cup give assurance that Christ came for you, Christ died for you, and Christ is coming again for you. And I don't know who said this. I put it on Facebook this morning. But as we come to the table of the Lord, in the Garden of Eden, 
The serpent, Satan said, take and eat, and it led to Adam's banishment. But here at this table, our Savior says, take and eat, because the banished have been reconciled. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. You can just come and know and live and worship. Let's pray and then let's eat. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to just, in some small way, just be a little bit excited. Lord, I love you because you first loved me. Lord, I love you and I need you because I can't do it on my own. Lord, there are too many people sitting in this room right now that have known me for a long time. They know that scared, lying, embarrassed 14-year-old boy. They know that weird, awkward young man that married Debbie. They know that scared, first-time dad. Lord, I can't pretend to have it all together. There's too many people here that know me. What I do have is a great Savior. And I want everybody in this room to know you the way you have been so gracious to show yourself to me, to have a living relationship with you, one that's vibrant and full of life. And Lord, I pray that this table of the Lord can mean something to us as we end another Sunday, we go into another frantically filled week, And there are people here that are doubting you and searching for you and hurting and struggling. There are people here that are battling with family issues and financial issues and moral issues and and father mental issues and and people are, are just filled with need. And this table says, bring it all to me. Don't be afraid. So Lord, may a spirit of the real gospel fall over us today. And may you encourage us and give us strength. Strength to be brave enough to say, I will rest in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.